0: Welcome to the DGR podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello guys, David here. Welcome back to the DGR podcast. I hope you're all doing very, very well. I'm going to do a solo podcast with you today. Uh, this is episode number 35. It's been probably a little while since I've done the solo uh it's been oh not since episode 30 so that was belief our biomechanics and improving ankle dorsiflexion so i actually didn't realize it had been so long because i was trying to spread them out where i do like guest solo guest solo but obviously not uh so sorry for leaving you for so long um since then actually we've had helen hall luke tulloch matt came on to chat about our instagram challenge and Dwayne Chambers was our last episode episode 34 um so all very good episodes Dwayne's one uh obviously most recent one that's been getting a ton of great reviews as have all of them but um that one seemed to a lot of people like really just enjoyed listening to that and I can see why because it was very very good uh you should have a listen I really enjoyed it I actually think back like I I really enjoyed the uh, I was surprised, what surprised me was how well Dwayne was able to tell a story. Like he really got me involved in his stories. Um, and like he took his time and he milked out the emotions and the different. different everything and put a lot of energy into them so that kind of struck me that something that i used to do probably more of and i haven't been doing as well because i've been probably rushing things because i'm in that like instagram 15 seconds get this done which i think is an art and a skill and it's an important skill to have that get that message across quickly but then in the longer form contact uh, content i want to make sure i'm not just rushing through things so i feel like i have been doing that a bit um so i'm gonna try and i don't know not try not try and slow down but like just. Just not trying and rush, I suppose, is, that, is the thing. So some questions that I'm going to try and get through today. Well, we'll see. I'll read out a few that I got. Uh, actually, I have quite a few, so I might not go through them all. We will, in no particular order, I don't know what one I'll start with. Uh, one about uns- unstable surface training in rehab. One about does the hinge help with neck tension? Uh, what is the most expansive and most compressive exercises, do you think? Um, Proximal stability promotes distal mobility, question mark. Uh, in a hinge, do the hips have to t- tilt anteriorly or just go back further uh, into flexion? So those are some of the questions we will try and cover today. Purely movement-based, I think, today. Um, biomechanics, all of that good stuff. And uh, we'll see here we go. What is going on with life at the moment? Life, it's pretty good. Married man, as I have probably said in a previous podcast. We are going to Italy to a friend's wedding now in a few days time. Um, and we're, well, we're actually going to ro- going to Rome first. Then we're going to head. It's about an hour north of Rome, I think, to a friend's wedding. Supposedly it's like going to be very hot in Ireland over the next week or two weeks. And that means that Italy is going to be very, very hot. So whether it was a good idea to bring a bunch of Irish people who are fond of having a drink. And also are fond of getting extremely sunburned to Italy in the middle of July remains to be seen, but I cannot wait. It's going to be a brilliant wedding. And then after that, we're going down to the Amalfi coast for, I think, five or six nights, which is a little bit south. Yeah. I think it's south of Italy. Kira books all this stuff. Um, so yeah looking forward to that there's I think we're staying in Positano down there which is supposed to be a beautiful little town I think and then all the little towns around there are very very nice so I'm going to try and put up like some clips on my Instagram of some of our travels this summer so I said to Kira, we want to like do a little few not vlogs but like mini vlogs of our of some of our trips I think that might be fun so that would be that we're trying to rent a little boat if we can we've been we've been assured by one of Kira's friends that we should hire our own boat and drive that around and, um, we will see if that's, hopefully we won't get shipwrecked along the way. Um, what else? Uh, Sydney tickets were released for the workshop next February. Um, released actually pretty early. And the host said that we had sold, I think, over 15 tickets in the first week and the workshop isn't on for another. Six months or something like that or longer. So that is like record sales, I think. Uh, so if you do want to come to the Sydney workshop, you really should buy a ticket because that was 15 tickets in the first week and that was like a week ago. So I don't know. I'll check in with them now and see how many guys in 4D health, see how many, um, tickets we've actually sold now. So this is guaranteed to be a sellout. So make sure you go and buy your tickets there, uh, for that workshop. Florida, we're going to New York for a little trip um we're going to san france teach each private workshop and you've heard me say this before but florida then we're selling tickets for florida as well in jeff's place the flexi bull um you really need to buy those tickets that's coming up to the time where we're going to close off the early bird and then probably close off sales altogether so that is i think that's in the first weekend in september i'm not sure i'll have to recheck um, but if you want to come to Florida, if you're coming from around, there's some really cool people. So make sure you get your, your tickets for that. Um, yeah. So that's Florida, San Fran, Sydney. New York, we're just going for a little trip. We have a Broadway show booked, I think. So I'm not sure which one, but, uh, if you have any recommendations for what we should do in New York for a few days, let us know. And, um, I think, oh yeah, we have Melbourne like organized as well, but we haven't released the tickets there. We'll probably release the tickets when we come back from Italy for that one as well. So I know loads of people are asking, should I fly from, from Melbourne to go to the Sydney? workshop the sydney workshop is going to sell out i think so wait to go to the melbourne workshop that's going to be the weekend before the sydney workshop i think so um so yeah they'll both sell out so keep an eye out for that uh okay first question let me see which one will we choose lucky dip uh in a hinge do the hips have to tilt a bit anteriorly or just go back to the farthest point and that is a question from sahil i think it is so it's actually a very good question there's a few nuances to this in the hinge What you will see if you go into a gym, what you will see pretty much everyone doing or at least being taught to do is do do a big anterior tilt of the pelvis to do a hinge. So you will see like chest being driven up to the sky, big, massive anterior tilt. That's how people will do their RDLs, their deadlifts, Um, even like even if you think about like uh, a single arm row um where you're kind of in a bent over position with your knee on a bench or something like that, that is like effectively like a hinge position. And again, you're going to see like this big massive arch. So that is how people are taught to hinge into their hips. Isn't a bad thing. That is actually, if you want to load the proximal hamstring length in the proximal hamstring, the belly of the hamstring and the proximal hamstring and load it in that way in your RDLs and stuff like that, that is a very good option. If you don't want to do that if you're looking to actually improve hip range of motion and hip flexion then don't do that but there's a few nuances to this so if someone is kind of stuck in this more posterior tilted position or which is where you They'll, they will really struggle with a hinge. They won't be able to get any anterior expansion, any chest wall expansion. So they won't be able to hinge very, very well at all. Um, And then like they might try and fake it by really arching their back, but they won't be able to hinge. So that's someone that you want to do a hinge with and someone who equally has like an anterior shift of the pelvis or so where the pelvis is pushed forward. Again, that's someone who you want to do a hinge with. I've spoken about this before. But you don't want to... Get, you don't want to teach them to anterior tilt through that. What you need to restore with them is the ability for them to stop pushing their hips forward. They need to put, learn to push their hips backwards. And that will often, that, 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 the way their pelvis is set up will often mean that they don't have access to any internal rotation. So you're trying to restore hip flexion maybe and internal rotation and give them a, the ability to load and lengthen into their glutes and their, and their hip muscles like that you don't want to anterior tilt them. You want to teach them pure hip flexion, push your hips back. But you might need to anterior tilt them out of a posterior tilt and back into a more neutral pelvis before you do that hinge. And this is where people, again, there's a few different ways of doing it. One way is like, if you even sit sitting there, whatever, put your hand on your back and almost feel like you're going to try and pull the back of your pelvis up So if you use your back muscles to pull the back of your pelvis up, so you go into an anterior tilt, you'll feel what you'll feel uh, happening there is that your erectors and stuff like that are shortening a ton and they're pull actively shortening a ton. They're pulling the pelvis at the back up, which spills the pelvis at the front forward. So that can help someone get out of that posterior tilt and into an anterior tilt or into an anterior tilt into a more neutral position this isn't how i recommend doing it it's actually the opposite it's actually a similar movement but how it's done is quite opposite a lot of these people will have a very tight rectus abdominis um and so their six pack is kind of on a lot so if you teach them to do that you actually won't take away the rectus tension at the front and now you've just tensioned them at the back as well so this is a bad option. What I recommend doing instead is to teach someone how to get like just that little bit more anterior tilt, which is really just taking them out of that more posterior tilt is just Getting them to relax their abs. So you can lay them down in a whatever position, get them to put their hands on their belly, relax your abs a little bit and maybe do some breaths into the belly and get the belly to be really soft. Maybe do some gentle anterior tilts and posterior tilts with abs soft. This will soften off the directus and it will actually allow the pelvis to kind of fall in, fall forward in the front a little bit. You can try it now. If you put your hands on your belly and you just really soften your belly and just really gently take an inhale and allow it to go into your belly. You don't even need to force it. You're just not using the abs to brace. You'll actually feel that your pelvis kind of gently spills forward a little bit, which could be a really bad idea for someone who's already in a ton of extension, but could be a really good idea for someone who's in that more posterior tilt or uh, anterior shift of the pelvis. So that's, that's what I would say. So the question was like, Do, do you want the hips to tilt a bit anteriorly when you're, when you're teaching the hinge? I presume Sahil means kind of when we are teaching the hinge that we talk about quite a lot, which is the best way to load and tear people's glutes apart and restore internal rotation. It's not, not the best way to, not the best way to do it isn't by. Pushing the femur into internal rotation. I'm trying to mobilize in that way is to open up the posterior capsule, which is the way that we do it when, when this is the goal in mind. So if your goal in mind is to load the hamstring, proximal hamstring and just do that whatever way you want, then do the anterior tilt, whatever way you want and get the load, whatever way you want in that way, like the RDLs or whatever. Just do a big arch. That's fine. If you want to, like, if you're using it to restore range, load the glutes um help someone get some chest wall, anterior expansion, all that stuff, then do it the way we do it, which is like, if someone is already in an anterior tilt, teach them to hinge without arching their back more and teach them how to push their hips back and like decompress the spine, pull the head away. Um, if someone is... If someone is in a more posterior tilt or anterior shift of the pelvis where it's pushed forward, then allow them to soften the abs a little bit, allow that pelvis to spill forward, which is really just coming back to a neutral-ish position and then he hinge them from there. But, Zahil, when you say, hopefully you've seen some of the our videos, Chris just actually did a found hinge class, a foundational, we have like foundational classes, squat class, hinge class uh pronation class pelvis class on the on the member site chris just did a hinge class this week which is three exercises for people how to learn to learn actually how to hinge so if you've seen that you'll see that it's not as simple as just pushing the hips back you have to stop other things coming back with that and the weight has to be in the right place so it's not as simple as that but but i would say the big thing is like not the big thing but an important thing is yes push the hips back. Don't don't try and drive an anterior tilt. If you're driving an anterior tilt, don't like you want to take someone out of a posterior tilt. Don't do it by letting them use their back erectors to do it. Do it by relaxing something else instead of put just layering on more tension everywhere else as well. And in general, that's a strategy that I would use a lot of the time. Let go of something so that we can move into a space rather than squeezing something harder to push ourselves into a space. So hope that makes sense. is a little bit of a depends in that question but it it does depend on what the person in front of you is presenting like and that just comes with understanding your assessments understanding how you're trying to coach and actually seeing what their strategy is and saying is this what i want or is this what not what i want um cool second question hope that one helps uh, uh unstable surface training for distal rehab this is from luke uh Kratos physio so uh i think it was a little bit more to that question but basically the question is would you use like or what are your thoughts on unstable surface training like i presume like bosu balls and air standing on air pads and stuff like that for distal tissue rehab so it could be distal when we say distal in this instance luke is more likely talking about the foot ankle calf achilles Maybe knee, all that stuff. So rehabbing all, and, and loading all them tissues. I think it's, I think it's not bad at all, Luke. I would use some of that stuff. If someone had an ankle, uh, ligament issue or whatever, I would use some of that. You actually probably saw I put up a post the other day, um, where I had someone just spending 30 seconds on their forefoot standing on a box. The heel, the heel is floating, but it's not elevated. Like I'm not trying to get them into a ton of plantar flexion. The ankle is in, uh, Ankle is still in some dorsiflexion. I'm not trying to get them up into a calf raise to hold there, but they're just holding there for 30 seconds. And that's part of a foot and ankle kind of conditioning, um, conditioning or just strengthening stuff. So that's, that's for that's actually for someone with uh sesamoid issues so they're kind of a little bit hesitant to load into that area so i just take the heel off and force them to load into that area even though the initial problem is happening because the heel doesn't move well enough and the midfoot doesn't move well enough you also need to just give them the confidence to push into the area that has been injured or hurt before as well so that's a there's two sides to that coin so you will see me using that little bit of kind of instability to force all these um these muscles to start to work gives them no choice but to work i would use that as well airx pad or bose ball or something like that for someone early on with an ankle injury or something like that but i get rid of it very quickly and to be honest i don't think you need it i think you can get just as much from are close to as much from just standing on a single leg and like throwing a ball against the wall or stand there with your eyes closed or doing like a foot clock with the other leg. While that leg stabilizes, you'll get a lot from that. Um, Ultimately, the issue with this stuff is it's it's hard to progress. Like, how are you going to continue to load it? And people will get better at it very, very quickly. So it is going to restore some kind of competency and like help the reflexes reflexive system kind of learn a little bit again but it's not fast enough so if if you think about like some people would do this stability type of training for a knee injury so uh an acl right as like injury prevention for an acl but the research is maybe starting to come out it's not super clear, but like there is things pointing to say that a- an ACL rupture is happening in milliseconds, right? So when the foot is hitting the floor, like that anterior tib- tibial translation is happening and there's it's happening in milliseconds. So when someone then says this is working reflexes by doing a single leg balance, it's still not anywhere near fast enough to actually really protect us from injury in the knee joint and you could obviously stay the same say the same with the ankle joint these things aren't happening fast enough to give us armor against proper real armor against what's happening when we actually get injured so i don't think that stuff beyond early on or beyond like just in between your sets which i quite like single leg balance work but i'm not like I I quite like it to get people onto a certain part of the foot and and work some of these muscles, but I'm not, I don't think I'm foolish enough to think that that's actually doing anything massively helpful, or I would certainly wouldn't be foolish enough to rely on this on its own. So I think it's okay. It's just not, it's just not quick enough. Like it's, it's not, there's not enough load. Number one, and then it's not actually quick enough to train things that we actually want to, the reflexes to train them as quick as we want them. So I would rather put my eggs in two, three baskets, which is like make tissues. If you're talking about this stuff for ACL, let's say, make our ankle even, right? Make the tissues around the area as strong as possible. Okay. That's one basket. Second basket, actually trained a reflexive system system to actually make people as reactive as possible that's a plyometrics mostly uh so those are two big things make people as strong and reactive as possible and thirdly make sure they have access to the movements they need to have access to so make sure that like they they can internally rotate and externally rotate all down through the lower limb and all of that stuff okay so that's where i would prefer to put my eggs in the basket and then and and then uh any like instability training i think maybe could go on top of that but it certainly won't won't make up a big part of what i would do so i hope that makes sense and i think that's a, a big lesson for people is like these injuries are happening in milliseconds and so if you're talking about reflexes with instability training, I can promise you it's not happening quick enough for you to actually really be training what's happening when we enter into sport. So I would consider or I would reconsider your thought process on that and start to make people more and more and more reactive in the form of what's happening in the air before your foot hits the floor. What is, how well can you actually pre-activate and pre-tension muscles so that you're ready for the floor, not that you're actually trying to stabilize when you're on the floor. Okay. Uh, That is question number two. Uh, Question number three. Uh, Which one? Most, uh, I don't have the person who asked this, sorry. And I didn't, I I, I just sloppily wrote down these questions and now I actually don't have the full question, but basically what, what are the most expansive and most compressive exercises or something like that was the question so the most i think the most compressive exercise is probably just a back squat uh, a heavy heavy back squat and i think sometimes people who love back squatting will like automatically get defensive when i say that compressive when I say compressive or compression, it's not a, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. We really need compression. I'm just trying to state kind of it as a relatively, hopefully a relative factual is probably the wrong word, but like kind of a factual thing, I suppose, if that, that doesn't even make sense. But like a back squat is extreme, a heavy back squat is extremely compressive. Not, a, I'm not saying compression is a bad thing. We badly need compression. And we badly need expansion, and hopefully most of us can bounce between the two. So we can bounce between expansion, compression, expansion, compression. That is what our body does. The back squat: when you put a heavy barbell on someone's back, it is a heavy, heavy barbell. It is like going to squeeze them, squeeze them a lot, and they are going to squeeze everything in their body against it. Next, pecs. They're going to brace. They're going to try and do things like squeezing into the floor with their feet. They're going to squeeze their shoulder blades, all of that stuff. They're going to be pushed forward on their feet. They're going to squat. And when you start to get up, I mean, like you're talking 1RM, 2RM, 3RM back back squats. A lot of people who do a lot of this stuff, not everyone, but a lot of people struggle to get all the way down into a squat. And that is... Where at the bottom of the squat, that is the most expansive portion of the squat. Now, some people can do it and go really heavy and squat really deep. That's, that's just a beautiful, and that is a beautiful movement when you look at that happening. So that is like I love seeing deep back back squats. It's it's an awesome thing. It's still not like there it's still not maximally not maximally but obviously with any load it's not going to be maximally expansive it's still not as expansive as some other squats but obviously the load is higher at the same time so the art, the bottom of the squat is the most expansive portion of the squat and most people when they go really heavy with the back squat that's the portion that they will miss so uh, now most people, when they go heavy, really heavy with all squats, that's the portion that they will miss. But particularly with the back squat, it will cause a lot of people to struggle to get down to that bottom position. Um, so that bottom position is where we're, mo- it's most expansive and out of all exercises. If you just look at the people who back squat the most, they usually get more compressed than other people, Um, but not everyone again. And again, compression isn't bad. You will see me using the back squat a lot with people. Sometimes I elevate their heels to just give them a, a the ability to stay that little bit more upright, right? And I just love deep squats. I think the more people could deep squat a lot, a lot of good things. I'm not a massive like squat fan, like some other people, but like, I really think deep squats for knees for like if you have patellar tendinopathy like i'm I'm looking at you thinking do you actually squat do you actually squat deep enough and do you squat strong enough that's a big thing that i'm thinking um I'm thinking about squats and I, I like to elevate the heels so people can get a bit deeper, get more load, more range without being as compressive. Cause if they're limited a little bit on dorsiflexion, they're going to make it even more compressive. So I would say that is probably the most compressive exercise. Remember that compression. I'm not saying compressive in a bad thing and compression. We need it everywhere in our body. Um, not just, not just expansion. The, the people, actually people who I see who have lost the ability to compress. They are some of the worst movers. OK, so don't don't lose the ability to compress most expansive. I, mm, I'm going to take it as not. Well, you can you can decide whether it's an exercise or not. I'm going to say walking is the most expansive thing that anyone could do for their body. I think um, aside from obviously breathing like well, we're breathing when we do everything. So that doesn't count. So walking, I would say. Now there's levels to the game when you're talking about walking. Like someone who's super compressed and go for a walk. It might not be super expansive for them, but it'll still be probably more expansive than anything else that they do. Um, they might they might just need a couple of they might just need to learn to relax as they have a walk, a right? At walk at a certain pace that just gets things pumping a little bit. That could be a bit faster for someone, that could be a little bit slower for someone else. So science knows this science supports this that walking is the mo- one of the most expansive things. Because if you look into the literature, you will, they will see, they will see all these things supporting around mental health, um, visual system, all this stuff with regards to people that are spending time in nature. And if they're spending time in nature, guess what they're doing? They're walking nature. So science actually supports this. They don't, don't, they just don't, they just don't measure. They're not measuring like, hip range of motion in people that are spending more time walking in nature but like they when you see someone or when you like the mindset thing is very much in my opinion linked to that when people are happier in their bodies and they're moving they're they're feeling better in themselves they're probably that that usually correlates or corresponds with them spending more time in nature and like that usually correlates with a more relaxed body which correlates with a little bit more range of motion as well so walking is the most expansive walking on a treadmill is less expansive walking um like in a dark street is, is a bit more expensive, is, is still less expensive. Walking in, in a city with all these cars and stuff is less expensive, but it's still, all these things are probably still quite expensive for a lot of people. And then like walking in nature is the most expensive thing. Um, especially if you have the ability somewhat to let your arms swing, to actually look up and out so you're sensing all these things around you, that optic flow of that sense of like you are moving through the world and things are moving past you, that is... If I have anyone in chronic, like chronic, chronic pain where it's unexplained pain, they can't seem to get to the root of it. I'll always ask them about their walking. And if they're not walking enough, if they're not getting enough steps in, I'll get them to do that. And if they can and they have the ability to get out somewhat in nature, that is what I will get them to do. And that is that is that is a, a winner. Like no one comes back from a nice, relaxed, longish walk in nature and says they are feeling worse so if i can get someone to start their day with that every day for a couple of thousand steps that's a really big deal as someone who who can end up quite compressed relatively often because of i think because of some of the neural stuff the double vision i have in one of my eyes um some of the some of the um some of the concussions and stuff that has like wreaked havoc on my body in a very big way and so like walking for me is one of the biggest things that i can do to really get myself feeling really really good and obviously there's all the other benefits that come along with it as well and i would say that i'm i'm a serial like i love listening to podcasts but if i feel super compressed if i Don't listen to a podcast. I feel much better after a walk, so I won't listen to a podcast or music or anything. I put in any earphones when I'm going for a walk. If my body feels extra crap, because I know that the sounds of the birds, the wind, the trees, uh, my eyes seeing all these things, that opens my body up a lot more than just. Um, going for a walk and listening to something at the same time. So the levels to the expansion is the most expansive exercise is walking in some kind of nature with nothing playing in your ears and your worldview just opens up. Just notice it. Go, go for a walk and notice it. Notice. All these sounds, notice this optic flow, your peripheral vision, pick a spot in the distance and and kind of scan the horizon, all of this stuff. Notice how your body moves so much differently than it moves when you do anything else. And that is the most, I think that is the most expansive thing. That is the biggest win, the lowest hanging fruit for almost anyone that is super compressed. It's just having a bit more of a walk and it doesn't take, it doesn't take like much, it shouldn't take much convincing to get people to do that so i hope that um i hope that answers that question obviously you shouldn't walk without listening to my podcast don't forget that but my voice can help you expand quite a bit but um maybe sometimes it can be nice to just take it out and have a stroll and and just make sure you're not looking down at your phone look out and feel what what that does to you um okay what else does the hinge, oh, did I read this one? Tristan, does the hinge help with neck tension? Again, this was a longer question. Um, or does, I think he said, does the hinge when you actually load, learn to lengthen, load the glutes, uh, improve people with, uh, help people with neck tension, something like that. Tristan, good question. Uh, yes, I think is the answer because when you learn to hinge in that way, and if you take an inhale in the bottom of the hinge, you'll feel really nice chest expansion, chest wall starting to open up and a lot of people with like really nasty neck tension can't expand posteriorly or anteriorly. They're usually compressed P, They're compressed on both sides. And they have a neck then that because, because the chest wall, let's say, can't open, they have tissues at the at the neck that are trying to pull the ribs up to help them get air in everyone knows about this kind of they talk about this accessory breathing uh from the neck muscles well that uh, that is if you look at people who like have uh like their neck has a ton of hypertrophy and they're not a powerlifter or they're not any of these people they it's like they have no right to have this neck this massive neck they're not a jujitsu person that they, they shouldn't have at the big as big a neck as they do and they shouldn't have as much tone in them neck muscles as they do They're probably using their neck to breathe a ton. And if you actually look at them, I bet you you'll see that they can't actually expand A to P. And so when you learn to really hinge someone really well and get this nice long decompressed spine and really get into deep hip flexion, then you start to take an inhale there. You'll see the chest wall really open. And that is one of the best ways to like get the sem scalenes all that stuff to really chill out and stop have, stop trying to do all kinds of funny things at the neck all the time. So, yes, I think the hinge is really important for people with neck tension and if you look at someone if you look at someone who can't hinge like someone I spoke about earlier with that posterior tilt or post, or anterior shift, you ask them to hinge, what they will do unless like until you can coach them really well is they will They will do something funny with their hips, which includes not actually hinging very well. And they will end up with their with their eyes still up on the roof. So their chest will come down towards the floor and their neck will be in a ton of extension looking up. So that's a surefire way to show or to see from someone the more the, the less quiet their neck is, the more movement they have in their neck. When you ask them to hinge, the more you kind of know that they're not actually hinging the way you want them to hinge. So look at what the neck is doing. If you can quieten down the neck or basically if you can get more movement from the hip, you'll see less movement from the neck. When you see um, less movement from the hip, you'll see way more movement from the neck. So that's that neck is a representation of what they're trying to do at the spine as well they're trying to drive extension through the spine because they can't get flexion at the hip so that neck is a representation of that or the opposite of that is if the chin drops down it's probably and they're looking like tons down at the floor the chin is down in their chest they are trying to flex their back instead of actually flexing their hips so that's uh that's a surefire way to, to see that and suddenly when you learn to hinge i think the neck tension and uh you they start to get atp expansion and the neck starts to chill out a lot. So yes, I think it does, but you might need to do other things at the neck to chill out the neck first. Um, because if you try and hinge someone who has a ton of neck tension and they're using their neck a lot, as you do that, as, as you try and hinge them, like you can aggravate their neck a little bit. So, um, it's kind of a, it's kind of, it's kind of, uh, again, it's kind of a depends one. You might need to just teach them to chill out their neck. Something like upper body basics. If you haven't done upper body basics, uh, do the neck section there. That's probably where I would teach them to get that jaw to glide a little bit, get that chest wall to open, doing some of the breaths, get the neck to chill out. And then I would probably go into the hinge if that was something that I thought they needed. And you will see that their neck is much, much quieter when they do that. And it would be much softer and suddenly be able to flex into their hips. As a general rule, I, Like no matter what, if someone comes to me with a foot issue or an elbow issue or a hip issue, and no matter any of those people, if they like, if they write on their form, they have a ton of neck tension or always have a very tense neck or an older injury to their neck, I will pretty much always go and clean that up before or at the same time as like I'll give them yeah of course I'll give them some foot exercises but if they have a foot issue but I'll also say here I want to kind of clean up your neck a little bit as well so I'll give them a couple of things for their neck as well usually starting off with some of those upper body basics things Um I think that's really really important to give someone like that ability to get their neck moving and relax and obviously they're not going to pronate their foot if their neck is so tense tense it's likely that they actually can't Feel the floor very well. They can't really ground into the floor. So they're living kind of up in the clouds. That's anyone can tell you that. There's always say, my shoulders are up in my ears. And you look at how their feet move and actually they don't really move. So, um, I know that sounds a bit woo woo, but that is what I do notice in people. And I'm not afraid to say this is what I notice in people. People will ask me, where's the research to support, support that? Maybe there is some somewhere. Maybe there's not. This is what I think i clinically see myself and you can take it or leave it if you don't if you don't agree with it i don't mind that's just i'm just going to give my opinion on this stuff um okay so that was the unstable surface the hinge with the neck uh expansive and compressive exercises uh in the hinge do the hips tilt anteriorly or just go back and answer that one okay so one last question then this was from felix the guys in the facebook group uh the members group were chatting a little bit about this and i said i'd kind of i weighed in a little bit but i said i'd chat about it on the podcast because i knew i was recording today so question was well felix hadn't really heard or he kind of came across this term and he was asking a little bit about it so proximal stability promotes distal mobility and i said yes it's a common term so you're correct in in that is a common term but i actually disagree with that uh quite a bit to be honest so I disagree with it from, uh, firstly, I don't love the term stability. I am wrestling with myself a little bit at the moment with regards to whether I just bin that term stability or whether I keep it. I'm not one that's big on like pedantics. If people like it, people like it. If they don't, they don't. Um, I just want to, I just want to like figure out when I use, cause I do use the term stability. What do I actually mean? Um, and yeah, that's something I want to figure out a bit more for myself before I actually bin it or not. Okay, so but for for this instance, I'm going to use like stability, which is just the way other people are using stability. So proximal stability promotes distal mobility. I disagree. I think it's actually the opposite. So if you look at the people who kind of promote this proximal stability promotes distal mobility what you'll see practically is when they use that and they're talking about like exercises that you'll see a lot of things like a lot of planks a lot of bracing a lot of paloff press variations just squeezing everything like let don't let the spine move and what you'll actually see with these people who promote proximal stability or think that proximal stability promotes distal mobility if you look at them what you'll see is They have proximal stability, meaning co-contractions all around their spine. So they have very little mobility around their spine and very little mobility around distally. They can't move their hands and their feet very well. They can't move their knees and their elbows very well. They can't move their hips and their shoulders very well. So in this instance, when the people who talk about that, I think proximal stability promotes distal stability. When you test someone's, when you look at someone's foot, and you see, can they pronate? You're also seeing, can they internally rotate their hip? That's like on the table. When you look at someone's hip flexion, you're also measuring their shoulder flexion. When you look at someone's toe touch, you're also seeing their ability to internally rotate. All these things, they, they can't be made, taken separate from each other. If you have ability to expand certain parts of the thorax that means you have the ability to move at certain parts of the pelvis and the foot as well so these thing it's just another way of people isolating parts and thinking that they're doing something but actually if you actually look at these people they can't move anywhere very well okay and if you in theory like it sounds great proximal stability promotes distant mobility. But then when you break it down in theory, it's actually, it doesn't sound great at all. If you're going to say anything, it would be the opposite. So I've kind of spoken about this before. And that is the idea that like, it's not an idea. It's a, it's a fact. Like our most valuable real estate is our brain, our heart, our lungs, all these things kind of more, it, just even if you talk about like the midline, these things that are more proximal than our hands and our feet. So just think about like all this stuff. things in our head and things in our thorax they are the most important things to our body and our body and our nervous system is going to do everything it can to try and protect those things right so let's take the example then of someone who's going for a run and their their foot is swinging their leg is swinging through the air and the foot is going to hit the ground if these people don't have the ability to actually pre-tension And you might, you might call pre-tensioning and intermuscular coordination and co-contractions. You might call that the ability to stabilize at a joint. You might call that because that is very like what people are thinking. So if you can't pre-tension and actually get these co-contractions before and during like stance phase, let's say, and when the foot is hitting the floor, then you actually don't have stability distally. And when you don't have stability distally, you don't have strength distally, and you don't have this intermuscular coordination distally, then what is your nervous system going to say? This force is coming into your body, and it's going to be shooting up into your body. And if your nervous system senses that you don't have the ability to manage the forces coming into the body, guess what's going to happen? More co-contractions, more stability, around the spine, around the rib cage, around the pelvis. So it's going to lock up that area to stop any of these kind of fluidness up there. So if you don't have that stability distally, you are going to have a ton of stability proximally. So this is, it's, it's, it's almost the exact opposite. So I would say distal stability promotes proximal mobility, if anything. OK, so it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that that pretensioning, all of that stuff. If you look at you see me doing some kind of more expansive based plyometric variations, which aren't actually plyometrics, like the yielding stuff, the stuff where we're not actually not even that. And even though overcoming based plyometrics, the true plyometrics, if you look at that and you look at someone who has doesn't have trust, they don't even know it, but they don't have trust for they're not. They're not prepared for their body to hit the floor, for their foot to hit the floor. They don't trust that. Their nervous system doesn't trust that the foot and the lower leg can manage these forces. Guess what they do? They squeeze the hell out of their shoulders, their spine. They brace as hard as possible there. Versus you see someone, you see some of the world's best athletes bounding they look more relaxed up top they have arm swing they're not bracing trying to trying to fight against the ground they're 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 going to fight the ground but they're not trying to use their entire body their neck and everything to really brace as hard as possible against that the people who can't who who don't have distal stability will need to try and find it and protect their body up there okay so when you actually break it down it doesn't make sense look at i think i put up a variation before or not a variation an instagram post ages ago about like just some of these some of these uh, the best cue is like relax your arms and that's where you'll see in some of these more yielding type type of plyometrics if someone can't relax their arms they won't be able to actually they won't be able to complete the task very well and there's there's examples of that and once you get the arm starting to swing actually straight away the foot looks looks like it can manage the forces better rather than them them using a bracing strategy proximally to try and manage the forces so i do a lot of that stuff where we're we're not trying to be too stiff through the foot and the ankle but stiff enough but at the same time we're actually getting the the body to move up on top of that and loads of arm swing and movement and stuff like that that promotes distal sorry that promotes proximal mobility i'm actually getting them learning to be more fluid up there and then i'm trying to choose a variation that's just challenging enough for them so that they can they can like learn to manage the forces when their foot is hitting the floor and not brace up proximally. So I think it's the exact opposite of that. And I think a lot of people, these people talking about the joint by joint approach, the way like interior, again, it sounds okay, but then the way they actually break it down just doesn't actually make sense. Like joint by joint approach. They mean, they talk about like the ankle being, the ankle being mobile, the knee being stable, the hip being mobile, um, so that means like if if the ankle is mobile, is the next joint down, then they're going to talk about is the foot like is that stable then? Because there's 33 joints there. So which joints are you talking about in the foot that are are mobile or stable? Which joints are you talking about? What if someone needs more mobility in their knee? What if they need some tibial internal rotation, but you just labeled the joint by joint approach as the knee needs to be stable? Doesn't make sense. What if they need more flexion? What if they need more knee extension? What if they can't access these things? What if it's, what if it's, that they, they it needs to be more mobile in a certain phase of gate and more stable and another phase of gate, which is what it does. So it is just you're just taking things in isolation and it doesn't make sense. So um I suppose I left it probably the ranty one to the last, but um hopefully my take on it makes sense. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Um, who knows? So I hope uh hope that was good. Don't forget, you should be joined up on DGR Interactive by now. We passed 550 members the other day. Um, I just looked at actually the foot and ankle kind of section that we have. Some of the videos that are there are actually really cool. So if you're in into like foot and ankle stuff, then you really should join up and do that. I'm going to turn that into like a master class, I think, where you see you just go through like, OK, here's the round here, heel. An Achilles issues video. Here is the plantar fasciitis and the extensor tone on the foot video. Here is the toe gripping video. Here is the pronation class. Here is the ankle dorsiflexion class. Here is the single leg stability class. Um, our exercise. Here is all these different. Here is like, uh, hopping and biomechanics of hopping. Here is understanding where mid is and max propulsion. So like even in that section alone, you're going to get easily the value for, for your money easily, easily. If you understand all that stuff, then imagine the amount of clients that you could help regardless of what those issues were. So that's just one section. Then obviously we have hip section where you can learn about hip internal rotation, closed chain, open chain, bilateral, unilateral. You have all these hinge stuff that we're talking about. Just go and do it. Commit to like 15 minutes a day or not a day, a week. Twice a week, if you want to accelerate your learning even further and, um, you will be a long way down the road in a month's time, two months time and you won't regret it. I promise. So that's DGR interactive. Make sure you sign up there. And apart from that, go and get your tickets for either the Florida workshop, the Sydney workshop. Um, and Melbourne, not yet. I'll release them soon. So, uh, hope that was helpful. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and let me know if you did. Obviously I appreciate a share or. Just some feedback it's hard to know when you're talking to yourself to a screen so um i'm out i'm gonna hit italy soon and i will see you when i'm back so talk to you guys soon